0: Thank you, Gary. It's hard to see someone who you once very much looked up to, uh, benefited from, become disgraced and delegitimized by their behavior. And recently, some news came out about a well known author and speaker and apologist, a man by the name of Ravi Zacharias. And I've benefited from his ministry for a long, long time. But then it just recently came out. This was in Christianity Today. They broke the story. It said a four-month investigation found the late Ravi Zacharias leveraged his reputation as a world-famous Christian apologist to abuse a massage therapist in the United States and abroad over more than a decade, while the ministry, led by his family members and loyal allies, failed to hold him accountable. And then it goes on to say there was one woman who told the investigators that, uh, that after he arranged for the ministry to provide her with financial support, he required sex from her. She called it rape. She said Zacharias made her pray with him to thank God for the opportunity that both received. <clears throat> and as with other victims, called her his reward for living a life of service to God. He warned the woman if she ever spoke out against him, she would be responsible for millions of souls lost when his reputation was damaged. Now we need to be praying for these victims of his, these women who were abused at the hand of this man. And it leaves some difficult questions. As far as how could a man who for so many years had made a profession of faith in jesus christ by that profession should be receiving the ministry of the holy spirit still manage to do what it was that he did it's difficult it's a difficult question to answer how do he commit such sins based on this profession it may even lead you to questions about the work of the holy spirit in your own life why is it you're struggling through something how do I make decisions as a Christian? You may be facing very hard, difficult decisions right now. You may have a sin in your life that just doesn't seem to go away no matter how hard you've prayed. And, who, and as those who have trusted in the saving work of Jesus Christ, I don't want to approach this subject this morning. Well, what does it mean to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? What does it mean to be empowered by the Holy Spirit? We're going to see some strange manifestations. I'll tell you ahead of time of the Holy Spirit, the passage we're about to look at here in 1 Samuel chapter 19. We'll be looking at verses 18 through 24. 1 Samuel 19, verses 18 through 24. Please stand with me for the reading of God's word. Now, David fled and escaped. And he came to Samuel at Ramah and told him all that Saul had done to him. And he and and Samuel went and lived in Naoth. And it was told Saul, behold, David is at Naoth in Ramah. Then Saul sent messengers to take David. And when they saw the company of the prophets prophesying and Samuel standing his head over them, the Spirit of God came upon the messengers of Saul and they also prophesied. (coughs) When it was told Saul, he sent other messengers, and they also prophesied. And Saul sent messengers again the third time, and they also prophesied. Then he himself went to Ramah, and came to the great well that is in Secu, And he asked, Where are Samuel and David? And one said, Behold, they are at Naoth and Ramah. And he went there to Naoth and Ramah, and the Spirit of God came upon him also, And as he went, he prophesied until he came to Naoth and Ramah, and he too stripped off his clothes, and he too prophesied before Samuel, lay naked all that day and all that night. Thus it is said, Is Saul also among the prophets? You may be seated. Again, strange Passage. The strange goings-on as we make our way through this book of 1 Samuel, seeing a people who are in a time of transition, who are going to be challenged. Do we put our faith in God? Do we put our faith in military leaders? And we get to this strange tale we see this morning. And by the way, next week we're going to start our Easter series. Believe it or not, it's here. And we'll spend four weeks after today going through the Gospel of Mark marching our way to Calvary and the Resurrection. As we continue this topic this morning, um, we're going to see this work of the Spirit, the Holy Spirit. And we're going to ask these questions. Well, what does the presence of the Holy Spirit, first of all, not mean? And go over some misconceptions. And then what does this presence of the Holy Spirit mean? And what guidance do I get from the Holy Spirit? How does He guide me? How does He direct me? So it's a big subject i want to talk first of all about what the presence of the holy spirit does not mean let's look a little bit more at saul uh, in this passage because he has this very odd experience now remember the spirit of god had come on him before he'd been anointed by the spirit of god he was empowered to be this king and the holy spirit works differently in the old testament than the new testament we see these special cases when the holy spirit comes in And evidently, uh, he came to um, this school, probably, that the prophet Samuel had, where he trained prophets, and people were there, and they were prophesying, speaking truth about God. But now, we see something different happening. And as he sent more and more men after David for the purpose, he wanted to finally take David out the experiences that he now has with the Spirit of God are debilitating. They had once been empowering, not anymore. Something else is happening. Back in chapter 10, the Spirit of God came and changed him, but the results we see now are dramatically different than what had happened before. And God's Spirit is not performing a positive operation on Saul in this case god is constraining him to the point of what we see there in verse 24 he even stripped off his clothes and prophesied before samuel he lay there naked all that day and night and then that question for that reason it is asked is saul also among the prophets <clears> This <throat> state of prophesying he was at the on the one hand uttering god's truth so people would know who was in control It wasn't some evil power. It wasn't some satanic power over him. Besides Saul's best attempts not to, he's uttering the truth of God. God's in control. But then he starts pulling off his clothes. And he may not have gone, it could have been that he still had on a tunic to be naked. You could still have a tunic on at that time, but he may not have. It's not clear from the text. And this question at the end, it's got a bit of a sarcastic tone to it. So imagine hearing it with some people kind of with their face crinkled up. Um, Is Saul also among the prophets? Because this ain't looking like prophet behavior. So he experiences the Holy Spirit in this way, and yet he does not have a character change. He had this this empowerment, this experience, but now he is not fit to be king. He has been delegitimized in front of the people by the power of God, and his dignity is gone. You see, a remarkable religious experience is not a substitute For obedience to and the abiding presence of God. As a matter of fact, we see remarkable experiences recorded in Matthew chapter 7 as no guarantee of salvation. When Christ is delivering his Sermon on the Mount, he he issues a warning. And he says in Matthew chapter 7, it's it's a haunting verse. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven. Only the one who does the will of my Father in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name? In your name, cast out demons and do many powerful deeds. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Go away from me, you lawbreakers. Because see, what finally matters is not these experiences, even though they can happen, casting out demons, prophesying, even these powerful deeds are probably talking about healings. And yet, what does does the text say on the last day? That is not going to be what qualifies you as being saved. Only trusting In the saving power and the works of Jesus Christ will save you. That is it. Beyond that, you stand judged before the Lord. So, it's not these deeds. I want to go through then three uh, ideas. This is what the, the presence of the Holy Spirit does not mean. This is what it does not mean. It does not mean that we have no responsibility as Christians in other words we cannot just become passive thinking we can do nothing now that we're receiving the ministry of the Holy Spirit that's not how this works Uh, Paul warned the people in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 and do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption it's an odd idea that we can make God sad by what we do And yet, that's exactly what we're told here in this verse. It's a difficult command. But listen how one pastor describes this idea of making God sad. He says, we're not accustomed to thinking of our thoughts and actions affecting God's heart. There are even aspects of our theology that make us question whether it is proper to think this way. Yet the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, speaks with wonderful intimacy about the nature of our God and his heart for us. So we still have responsibility. This relationship that we have with the Holy Spirit is a cooperative one. And our actions come to bear. And the uniqueness about the relationship we have in the Holy Spirit that they did not have in the Old Testament, that we do have in the New Testament, is that the Holy Spirit is going to change us. willingly or unwillingly when we put our trust in christ but our actions have consequences in the context of ephesians there's a lot of emphasis on speech for example it grieves god when we speak poorly of each other Uh, and, and it says to use speech that builds up others so don't be passive don't think that passivity is part of the plan of the holy spirit it is not We'll continue on with that theme, but I want to get to the second one. It also means that there, it does not mean there will be future blessings. The the presence of the Holy Spirit in your life does not guarantee you future blessings. Um, We see this all too often in the fall of guys like Ravi Zacharias and televangelists. I mean, the list goes on and on of these guys that really, they, they mess up. First Baptist Church has a wonderful history. Over a hundred years, this place has been making disciples. I don't want that to be the last hundred years. There was an interesting group that I came across this past week called the All Blacks, a New Zealand rugby team. They're called that because of the uniform that they wear, and uh, they're tough. They've got a 60-year history of victory the best record of any professional sports team in the world. Now, what kind of pressure do you think comes with having a 60-year history of winning seasons? It influenced the mantra they live by, we fear our legacy more than our opposition. (laughs) Because they know that past success does not guarantee future victory. That they have to be vigilant, and we have to be vigilant. I would love to see First Baptist go another 100 years. Let's don't grieve the Spirit in what we do here. And let's don't get wonky when things get hard out in this culture. And then finally, it doesn't mean that we always feel good. The presence of the Holy Spirit does not mean that we always feel good. We still live in a fallen world. We're still gonna struggle with disillusionment. We're still gonna struggle with depression. We're still gonna struggle with discouragement. We shouldn't stay in those places, but it is going to come. We are going to be sad. Christ himself wept when he had to witness the death of his friend Lazarus. But Christians can kind of have a a skewed view of the Christian life. We can become depressed over being depressed because we think, well, it's not supposed to be that way. I've got the Holy Spirit. I'm supposed to be happy all the time. Well, sorry, it just doesn't work that way. The wonderful man after God's own heart, he also wrote those Psalms. He was the one that you heard in Psalm 51 say, Lord, my bones are crushed, but you can heal my bones. So then what does the presence of the Holy Spirit mean? What does the presence of the Holy Spirit mean? And I want to take a look at, at David's life in this present moment. Look at verses 18 through 20. Now David had run away and escaped. He went to Samuel in Ramah and told him everything that Saul had done to him. Then he and Samuel went and stayed in Naoth. It was reported to Saul saying, David is at Naoth in Ramah. He sends his messengers to capture David. When they saw a company of prophets prophesying with Samuel standing there as their leader, the Spirit of God came upon Saul's messengers, and they also prophesied. Now this is getting weird. It's getting, it's getting kind of weird. Because David was led to this place of safety. He was just a few miles away from uh, this prophet, and he made his way to the prophet, for safety and he comes across these this group of prophets looks like they're in training and god is going to use this as a place of protection now david's having a really good winning streak he's defeated lots of enemies he's empowered by the holy spirit he's doing the lord's work and then he he runs away he's living out god's designs god's empowerment that he has through the holy spirit So things are going well, he has a place of safety he can go to, and the Holy Spirit is on him. And just for a moment, I want to talk about the meaning of the word, Holy Spirit. Actually, this word is used in uh, the Greek text, paraclete, and the words helper, supporter, counselor, comforter, encourager, advocate, all of these words are encompassed in the name Holy Spirit. So there's not a single English word that really does justice to the work that the Holy Spirit does in our lives. Perhaps it's better illustrated. Um, I think it was illustrated well. There was a, a group of uh, Bible translators who had gone to the car people in Africa, and they were trying to figure out how do we translate this term paraclete into this African language. And they were working through that, and they noticed one day a group of folks carrying these bundles on their heads. They were walking in a line, and there was one person in that line that didn't have a bundle on their head. And they thought it was some kind of a boss or manager, you know, you know making sure these people didn't screw up. And, but that wasn't the case at all. The purpose of this one person who didn't have a bundle on their head was to watch in case someone fell over, they would pick up the bundle and put it on their head and start to carry it that was their job and when they heard that and they found out that the meaning of that person's name was the one who falls down beside us they thought that is how we are going to translate the word holy spirit that's what he does he comes beside us i love that song Waymaker. even when we don't feel it even when we don't see it god is working The Holy Spirit is working in us and through us in ways we can't even begin to understand, but He is. We've got that promise. We've got that assurance. So I want to talk then for a moment about the guidance. What kind of guidance do I get from the Holy Spirit? If you're like me, you've been caught in some situations where you're like, the the length of your prayer is like, Dear God, help me right now. (laughs) Maybe you're facing a hard decision. You've gotten wh- how, whatever it is. You know, I think it's almost cruel sometimes that we look at 17-year-olds and say, okay, you need to figure out what you're going to do with the rest of your life so you can major in that in college. And by the way, take it from me, you can, you can do something else, okay? It, it does happen that way sometimes. Who are you going to marry? How are you going to live this day? How are you going to approach this situation that seems so difficult and, and out of your control? There have been scads of books written on how to discern the will of God. It's on our hearts and minds. And I think for the most part, it produces a lot of anxiety in us. But we do get guidance from the Holy Spirit. And we at times need God-sized help. So let's let's talk about this. And first of all, uh, he does help us in making decisions. He does help us in making decisions. And again, I have... I've been up all night at times. I remember sometimes, it's a blessing to get more than one job offer, but then it's also agonizing trying to figure out sometimes, well, which one am I supposed to take? How am I supposed to do this? And I hope that what you've seen is we've been struggling through this narrative in 1 Samuel, and all the narratives you see in the Old Testament is God's sovereign purposes being worked out in seemingly random chance. Good luck trying to figure out how this happens. But he does, he works through chances and circumstances and intellect and emotion, all of these things. And God's guidance, and and hear me carefully on this, it's as much something he does as something that he gives. He does it probably much more than he gives it. And I think this is best illustrated. I want to share a story. And as I'm sharing it, note how active the individual is in this story. He's not being passive. He's not sitting down and trying to empty his head, trying to figure out something that's going to pop in there. But listen to this story. It's about a guy uh, named John Charles Ryle. This is recorded by J.I. Packer in a book called Who's Afraid of the Holy Spirit? And he was an expository preacher, and he was a writer, and he was a a wonderful evangelical uh, leader. He was the first pastor in Liverpool, England, but he did not get to that position easily because here's what happened. He was from a very wealthy family, but when he was 25 years old, his dad was a bank owner and the bank went bankrupt. So this 25 year old that thought he had all the security in the world, all of a sudden realized he had nothing. He was poor, he'd been in the lap of luxury and now it was all going to disappear. So he sought to become a pastor. Now, this is interesting. Not because he wanted to be one. As a matter of fact, um, it says that he didn't feel any kind of inner promptings to do this. He was just going to do it because it was the only profession open to him that would give him an immediate salary. That was it. The area bishop that was going to ordain him looked at him, and he saw he was Oxford educated. He said he had kind of a, what he described as a lively Christian experience. And said, okay, you're qualified. You're fit to do this. He was married not long after this. He was married twice. His first two wives died. He was married a third time. And he really enjoyed his first pastorate. Uh, He said his only goal in marriage was to find a Christian woman and not marry a fool. (laughs) Then he moved to a larger, better paying parish. And then soon after that, he was invited to be the dean of the cathedral at Salisbury. He was 64 years old. So a long time he spent ministering. Then he gets this decision put in front of him. And he said that he did not want to go. So he wrote a letter to a friend and said said this in the letter. He said, flesh and blood were utterly against it. But he talked to 16 men. He said, almost every one of the men I consulted said you ought certainly to go for the sake of christ's cause in the church of england so he said well how could i withstand he said i had prayed for lights and signs of god's will i love that line man have i done that before he said this was all i got if three men had said refuse i would have refused but i am a soldier The captain of my salvation seems to say, these are your marching orders. I have nothing to do but to obey. He said, pray for me. My heart is very heavy. He was in utter misery. But because these godly men said go, he took that as the discernment of God's will. The thing is, he didn't end up going. Right after he got that, he said there was a call to Liverpool, England. He was depressed about going to Salisbury, but he'd not already, But had he not already told his church that he was leaving, he would not have had the strength to take this position in Liverpool. He'd already made up his mind to leave his current job, and that's what equipped him for this place of long and fruitful ministry at the age of 64. So if you think, well, I've made all my decisions in life, I can sit back and rest. Think again. Now, how do you go about diagnosing this? This the experiences of one man and you see him bearing his intellect into this you see his emotions in this he didn't want to go to salisbury he wanted to go to liverpool and then god made a way for him to go to liverpool packer this uh very articulate intelligent theologian he diagnoses a bit of this i want to share that with you he said yes and, and packer asked the question was this the leading of the holy spirit He said, were these discernments the product of inner voices or impressions, freak coincidences, private revelations, or any such thing? No. They were the rational fruit of having a biblical value system and a heart for God, for his gospel and for his glory, and of seeking wisdom, noting circumstances, taking advice, and not letting the merely good elbow out the best. By these means, the Holy Spirit gave Ryle discernment for his decisions. And we should expect that he will use the same means with the rest of us. Notice the employment of the mind. Coupled with opportunities outside of his control. Because this is a wonderful example of how the Holy Spirit leads us and guides us in these days that we're living in. It was an active process. There was no emptying of the head to see what popped in there. And in addition to this, a second guidance of the Holy Spirit is the provision of illumination. The provision that he provides, he illuminates. And this is what, uh, this is about the Holy Spirit teaching us things about God. In 1 Corinthians 2.12, Paul says, Now we have not received the spirit of the world, but the spirit who is from God, so that we may know the things that are freely given to us by God. Now, what's that mean? This is about the Holy Spirit searching the mind of God for our sake and teaching us things about the mind of God so we can have understanding when we study the scriptures. This includes the gifts of other believers that work in us and that we benefit from. God gifts you all and me so we can help each other because no single one of us have all the right answers and have all the same gifts. This is all the process of the Holy Spirit illuminating God's truth to us. We need other people's perspectives. We need this in our Bible studies. And this you know, this Christianity thing is a team sport. And we need each other with our minds again actively employed. He helps us, so he helps us make decisions, he illuminates our minds, and he also gives us godly desires. He gives us godly desires. And look at Galatians 5, 17. Um, For the flesh has desires that are opposed to the spirit, and the spirit has desires that are opposed to the flesh. For these are in opposition to each other, so that you cannot do what you want. So we need this life controlled and energized by the holy spirit and the goal here is that we are responding to the godly desires of the holy spirit and we are opposing the sinful desires of the flesh and that word desires it talks to a very strong human longing And then there are these fruits of the Spirit from verse 22. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So we have these desires for joy and peace. The Holy Spirit knows these are our desires. We're made with these desires. And he seeks to fulfill those desires. So much so, and I love the way uh, uh, Wayne Grudem puts this, He says, uh, Paul implies that we are to follow these desires as they are produced by the Holy Spirit in us. Follow these desires. I mean, what's going on? Because, see, as the Holy Spirit is producing these fruits in us, we should also be pursuing those thoughts and actions consistent with these fruits. Now, what does that mean? It means taking thoughts captive if they aren't consistent with this kind of fruit. When we lust, when we're unforgiving, when we feel anxious, when we're harsh, that kind of living is not consistent with the kind of fruit that we want. The Holy Spirit is producing this, yes. He's the one doing the work. And we are living lives in cooperation with that fruit production in a way that doesn't grieve the Holy Spirit. And it is active. It's not passive. We're employing our whole selves in this. And this changes our behaviors, it changes the music we listen to. That isn't consistent with that kind of fruit, how we interact with people, the amount of time we choose to give to people, what kind of job we do. This is an act of engagement with our minds and with our hearts. For the Christian, it's also how the Holy Spirit guides us. So putting this all together, Fully engage your mind and emotions while following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. Fully engage your mind and emotions while you're following the guidance of the Holy Spirit. I want to close um, with this. Whenever I was on a fishing trip, actually my family used to take a fishing trip to Canada every other year. And my dad and I were out in a boat and it was way up north. Uh, this this lake in it was one of those fly-in trips, it was inaccessible by roads. A lot of eagles there. And you can watch these eagles. And the Bible actually has a lot to say about eagles. And these eagles, once they get to a certain altitude, they they don't flap their wings anymore. But yet they're still going higher. And you watch them, and they've learned from a young age to ride warm air, they call them thermals, to, to feel that thermal pressing against their wings and they can just continue riding that up it's like they're on those circular ramps that just keep going up in the air now when they're little eagles they just try to flap their wings and they fall out of the nest they have to learn how to do this but at some point they can just enjoy the pleasure of flight and rest because they have learned how to cooperate with the air and you know what, do you know what the meaning of the word spirit is in the New Testament? It's pneuma, and it means wind. And, I, and also I see a lot of Bible verses that talk about, 33 verses, as a matter of fact, that talk about eagles and flying. So when we first begin following Christ and practicing spiritual disciplines, we're kind of like an eagle learning how to spread its wings. We've got to flap real hard at the beginning. But as we go along, we practice. And we learn to soar on this current of air, this pneuma, the Holy Spirit. And I, I, I think that's, there's something here for us. We flap and flap, but eventually we catch this current of air and we start to soar. And this is how the Holy Spirit works with our training. He's not only our coach, but he's also the power behind everything we do. Please pray with me. Almighty God, we thank you for your presence in our lives. We thank you, God, that we can trust and depend on you, even when we don't understand our circumstances. And Lord, as people indwelt by the Holy Spirit, for every believer here today who's now receiving this ministry, I pray that that we would learn to soar by your power. I pray that we would engage our minds and our emotions as we follow you God and I'm thankful Lord that we are a body of Christ united by the power of the Holy Spirit in community with each other as we are in community with God which is what we will celebrate this morning in this act of communion that we're about to take thank you Jesus for making a way it's in your holy and precious name we pray amen